I'm not sure we're going to get to the whole second chapter tonight, and I'm not sure we really should, but um, we'll, we'll go as far as seems right to, uh, to go through. We have uh, looked at chapter 1 last week, talked a little bit about the, the background of the letter, and we pointed out a couple of things. One that we'll remind you of is that Paul is not trying to fix a problem with the Philippian church. As a matter of fact, he expresses a tenderness and a, and a closeness with the Philippian church and and meaning the people in the Philippian church that make up the Philippian church, um, more so or as much or more so than, uh, than any other church he addresses. He um, makes mention that uh, he remembers them with joy in his prayers and thanksgiving and so forth, and, that, and he wasn't able to do that and to say that to every church. He uh, communicates some of the reasons why in chapter 1. One of them is that uh, there were those in the congregation that stood side by side with him, when uh, he was taken captive by the, re- the Roman magistrates, uh, the city magistrates, and uh, beaten and thrown in jail and, and so forth. And uh, so he has a special affection for them. Not only that, but after he left, they had communicated with him by sending him uh, financial support and, uh, and help on a couple of different occasions, uh, so much so that he even uh, brags on this church, the Philippian church, to the Corinthians, when they said they wanted to help but then didn't follow through. And so, um, uh, so Paul is writing from his heart uh, some things to, the, uh, to this, this church. And he's, he's able to be, um, I'm not sure this is the right way to say this or not, but maybe you'll get the gist of what I mean when I say it. He's able to be gentler with them than he was with many of the other churches that he wrote to. Uh, there were times where Paul had to uh, assert his uh, uh, position in his office as an apostle. There are times where he had to compare himself to others that they thought were apostles, but but in Paul's estimation, they were false prophets and teachers and so forth. And uh, uh, and he doesn't have to do that with Philippian church. He knows they love him and, and they know he loves them. So in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul has uh, uh, instructed them and encouraged them to continue to be um, a light in the world <clears throat> and let their manner of life be seen in uh, in the city. Philippi was the chief city of Macedonia, a big city. And uh, so he's wanting the, the church to be recognized because of who they are and the life of God in them. So in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, if there, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, bowels and mercies is translated tenderness and compassion in uh uh, in other translation, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem each other, esteem other better than themselves. <clears throat> Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul starts off in verse one and says, "If you really love me, here's what I want you to do." I know you do because you've communicated with me. You've sent offerings to me. You've, uh, uh, Epaphroditus, he'll talk about in the last part of the chapter, has been sent with the last offering. Apparently that had happened before. And uh, so he knows that these people care about him and they don't just pay lip service to him. They really follow through. So he says, if you really love me, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be united with one another. If you really love me, and I know you do, then I want you to be like-minded. Now, that doesn't mean I want everybody to have the same opinion. These uh, are uh, Gentile. Uh, this is a Gentile church. And the people of Macedonia, as in any 
big city of that day would be people that come from a variety of backgrounds and traditions and histories and temperaments and and so forth. He's not saying everybody has to be a cookie cutter just like one another. But he's saying let everybody be united in purpose. Let everybody be united in spirit. Be like-minded. Fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Uh, Strife and vainglory is translated in other translations, selfishness or conceit. It's an interesting thing that Paul makes mention of something that was not generally thought of as being um, an admirable quality. And that's the characteristic, the spiritual characteristic of humility. In the pagan world, in the time that Paul wrote, people were very assertive. People were bullies. There was no reason not to be. It's not like people had been taught manners and, and you know, open doors for somebody type thing. Um, people were not considered to be equals. And so you assumed or presented yourself. Uh, you showed how important you were by the way that you mistreated other people. And here Paul is talking by the Holy Ghost saying, that's not the way it works in Christ. So he says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Two points I want to bring out on this verse. One is in Third John verse 9, John writing to the church or writing to Gaius, a letter, a personal letter, but he mentions the church that Gaius is a part of. He makes mention of a guy whose name starts with a D, Diotrephes or something like that. I don't know how to say it. But he makes mention of him as having the preeminence. Another translation brings out what he's talking about. He says he likes to put himself forward. And then he goes on to say, the ones that I sent, he wouldn't receive. I spoke to the church, but he hindered the letters. In other words, there was one guy that John was acquainted with, and this must be related to the churches of Asia in some way or another, although we don't know which one or to what degree. Uh, But there was one guy that held himself out as being the one that knew more than everybody else and the one that should make the decisions above everybody else so much so that he rejected the apostle john the last remaining apostle the most famous christian of the day his day in 94 a.d something like that how he would not receive anything that john said because he knew better well that's exactly the opposite of what paul is talking about he's saying don't let anybody among you don't any of you among you among the congregation Put themselves forward trying to gain something for themselves. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I like another translation on this because when it talks about his own things, it's talking about good points. In other words, he says, don't just look at what's good about yourself. But look at each other in the same way to find the, the good things in other people too. Don't just look at things that you admire about yourself, qualities or characteristics that you think are good and and positive and and, uh, pleasing to God. Look for those things, same things in other people. Have the same attentiveness attentiveness to finding the good in other people that you find in yourselves. And folks, we all think we're good. There are times where we feel worthless and get under condemnation of the devil and so forth. But we all love ourselves. We're all well acquainted with the things that we like about ourselves. We'll cover up the things that we don't like and give ourselves a pass on that. 
But Paul is saying, be as diligent to find the good in other people that you find in yourself. And then he uses Jesus as an example. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The word was or the verb was is not in that, in that verse. It literally reads, let this mind be in you, which also in Christ Jesus. So the translators had to find a verb. Now, I think they did a good job. I think as we talk about this and the example that Paul uses, the only two verbs or or two uh, translations of this that would make sense was let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, or which was seen in Christ Jesus. And now he's going to talk about Jesus. Now, folks, the next few verses are really, really important. But remember, Paul is writing a letter. He's not writing a doctoral thesis. And so whereas scholars have taken this apart and teachers have taken this apart and people have preached all kinds of things about being equal with God and and so forth, the only point Paul is trying to make is Jesus is the perfect example of humility. The perfect example of humility. And here's why. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus or also was seen in Christ Jesus. Who, Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Another translation says thought his equality with God was not something to be seized or held on to. Now this is talking about Jesus with the Father before he came to the earth. So he's saying Jesus, who was God himself, the very nature of God, in spirit form, before he came to the earth, before he was born as a man, was equal with God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all co-equal and co-eternal. And Jesus chose to set aside that equality. He humbled himself to the plan of God and came to the earth. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Well, he was equal with God, but he didn't hold fast to it. But made himself of no reputation and took upon the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Folks, I would remind you of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember what the devil tempted them with? Tempted her with and he went along with? Eat the forbidden tree, eat the fruit of the forbidden tree and you'll be like God. In other words, Eve was tempted to snatch or take hold of or seize something that would make her a higher or bring her to a higher position or a higher plane. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus did. Jesus was already on an equal plane with God the Father And he set that aside and came to the earth. But made himself of no reputation. That literally means emptied himself. Made himself of no reputation, emptied himself, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, folks, what the point is, the only point that Paul is trying to make here is that Jesus did not use his equality with God. The Bible tells us he created the world. All the, the forms of the uh, aspects of creation in Genesis, tell a, the Bible tells us that Jesus was the creator of all those things. God was the planner. Jesus was the one that carried out the plan. He didn't use his position to try to gain any advantage even when he came to the earth. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, if it was me that was equal with God and then came to the earth, I would probably have done it with some kind of fanfare or some kind of letting people know Just want you to know, here's who I am. Here's how things work. See all this? I made this. But over and over again, Jesus calls himself the son of man. Time and time and time again, he denies. Well, that's not a good way to say it. He refuses to take the opportunity 
to claim credit for what rightly is his because of the work that he had done. And over and over again, he identified with man rather than identifying with God. He identified with God as his father, and that was enough for people to want to kill him. But there's a lot of things that Jesus could have used his advantage to his advantage as far as his nature. Now, he never stopped being God. He's never stopped being in the nature of God, the same nature of God. But here where it says that he uh, made himself of no reputation, emptied himself, as I said, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. That verse of scripture has caused a lot of problems in the early church. Uh, not just that one specifically, but that one and others like it. Because there was a, there was a teaching that was in, uh, 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 in place. I don't want to say prevalent, but it was certainly um, something that, that was serious enough for John to refer to in some of his last letters. And that was the idea that Jesus came in the likeness of men, but it wasn't real flesh. It was called docetism. And John writes in both his first letter and his second letter to the churches, First John and uh, First John and Second John, he writes about both. Uh, in both letters, he writes something to the effect that anybody that claims that Jesus didn't come in the flesh is the Antichrist. Doesn't mean the Antichrist, but it means the teaching of the Antichrist against God. So it was something that was uh, in practice enough, well enough, well enough known for John to have addressed it. But what did Paul mean when he said Jesus was made in the likeness of men? Jesus was made in the likeness of men. His flesh couldn't have been like your flesh and mine. Because you and I are born of man and woman. He was born of God and woman. So there was something different about his flesh. What that was, we don't exactly know. Could be that he was in the same physical form, fleshly form as Adam in the Garden of Eden. Possibly. One thing we do know, Jesus said no man can take his life from him. He has to lay it down. So unless he chooses to accept death, death would have been impossible to him, for him. And it was impossible for him until he chose to lay his life down and he did so on the cross. So where it says in being found in fashion as a man. I'm sorry, I'm I'm ahead of myself. Verse 7 again, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. I want you to realize that he didn't stop being God. The nature of God didn't change. He didn't exchange the nature of God for the nature or the form of a servant. He showed forth the form or the nature of God in the form of a servant. And that's the point Paul's trying to make. Remember the whole context is humility. Jesus' example of humility. Now, folks, I I, I don't know how to relate to the point that I'm about to make, and I don't think any of us can. I have a hard time imagining what the difference is between being co-equal with God and then having to come to the earth to be born in a manger. Could we safely say that's a step down? And that's the whole point. Jesus was willing to take a step down. He didn't have to. He's the creator of the universe. But he chose to take a step down. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you really, really, really love me, love each other. Put one another first instead of yourselves. Be like Jesus. He took a step down. Verse 8, and being found in fashion as a man, once he got to the earth, in other words, being found in fashion as a man, 
he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This verse of scripture is is, uh, difficult to our Western mentality because we don't understand what it means. First of all, it's saying Jesus humbled himself to come to the earth. And then once he got here, he had to humble himself once again. Well, what did he humble himself to? He humbled himself to the obedience of death, even the death of the cross. Here's why this, this verse is tough for us to comprehend what Paul is saying. They understood it because their, their day and their customs and, and the things that they experienced were different than us. For 2,000 years, we've looked at the cross as a sacred symbol. In their day, in Jesus' day, it was not. There was nothing sacred about it. There was nothing holy about it. There was nothing desirable about it. I'm going to read to you a verse of scripture in uh, um, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Uh, I'll get it here. Hold on. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22, it says, And if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he be to be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt anywise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. Please get this. He that is hanged is cursed of God. Hanged means crucified. Is cursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. You need to understand something about, uh, about the cross and the, 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 the form of death that crucifixion really uh, represented or was. And that is, it was such a vile, horrible, inhuman way of death. The most inhuman way of death. That first of all, a Roman citizen could not be crucified except in extreme conditions. He had to be the worst of the worst criminals or he had to be a political enemy of the state. Those were the only two conditions whereby a Roman citizen could even be considered for the cross. Now, he could be executed. Paul was a Roman citizen and they beheaded him. But that's why they beheaded him. They couldn't crucify him. It was just unknown and unheard of for a Roman citizen to be crucified. The word cross itself was not used in polite language or polite conversation because uh, everybody understood that the cross, the only thing that cross ever meant was this inhuman means of death. This vile, unhuman-like means of death. And God said, Even back in Deuteronomy, and this is what Paul refers to and quotes in Galatians 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. Well, here's what that means. When it says Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, if we're not careful, we can look at that verse of Scripture and think that Jesus had a hard time being obedient to God. But it's not obedience to God that Jesus had to endure. Jesus didn't have to humble himself to be obedient to God. Jesus had to humble himself to be obedient to death. It was death that commanded obedience. It was spiritual death that commanded the death on the cross. Not God. God had set spiritual laws in motion when he told Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree. 
and they disobeyed. God said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, he can't be talking about physical death because they didn't die physically that day. So what death is he talking about? In the day that thou eatest thereof. In other words, death will overtake you immediately. What death overtook them? Spiritual death. Well, what satisfies spiritual death? There's only one thing. And that was a death that made the sacrifice, the individual being sacrificed, a curse unto God. But in order for that sacrifice to be worthy, he had to be holy and without sin. So when Jesus came to the earth, he's already humbled himself to be born as a human being. But now he has to become obedient to something that everything about him reviles. Everything about him withdraws from. And that's death. And not only death, any death, but the specific death on the cross, to be hanged on the cross. So where it says Jesus was equal with God, and don't get me wrong, Jesus knew what the plan of God was before he ever accepted his role. The Bible says Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world. That means God planned between himself and the Holy Spirit what the outcome would be, what the plan of redemption would be. Jesus knew full well what it would entail. So what did he do? He humbled himself. He didn't hold on to his equality with God, his preexistence with God before the earth. He didn't hold on to that, but he willingly laid that aside and emptied himself to come to the earth. And then once he got here at the earth, the Bible says Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are. That means Jesus was presented with the opportunity to either yield or resist the one and only one thing that would fulfill God's plan. And that's the death of the cross. That's what he had to be obedient to. When he's agonizing in the garden of Gethsemane and sweating great drops of blood, he's not drawing back from the plan of God. He's drawing back from death. Because death, specifically the death on the cross, is the only way that spiritual death could be satisfied. When Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if there's any other way to do this, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. That's what that means. That means if there's any other way to fulfill your plan of redemption for mankind, then let's do that. What's he asking for? He's asking for a different death. He's asking for a different means of death. He's not saying, if I have to die, I'm out. He's saying, if there's any other way other than a death that makes me cursed unto you, let's do it that way. But if not, if that's what death demands, and that's what spiritual death demanded, not my will, but yours be done. What I want you to get, folks, and if this is the only thing you get out of this message this evening, get this. Jesus made himself obedient to the thing that he reviled the most. See, we look at ourselves and we look at Jesus and we say, well, yeah, he submitted himself to the will of God, but that was Jesus. And he knew what spiritual things were like. He knew what it was like to be in heaven and, and he knew God in a much better way, greater way, closer way than we do. And so submitting to the will of God, becoming obedient, humbling himself to become obedient to the, to the will of God yeah, I can see that. But I've got to submit to people that I really don't like. Folks, when the Bible says Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, 
It means Jesus chose to submit himself to the thing that he hated the most. Wherefore, verse 9, because of this, because Jesus went to the lowest depths, God has exalted him to the highest heights. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. Folks, I want you to realize Jesus has a special name that no one else has. It's the name that's above every name. What is that? He's going to tell us. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Two things, two parts of this, two components of the name that Jesus was given, the, the, the exalted name of Jesus. One is the name that was given him that was above every name is the name of God himself. Here's what I mean. In the Greek Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, it was the Bible of Jesus' day. It was the Hebrew translated into the Greek. The name that we know of is either Jehovah or Yahweh. They really mean the same thing. One is just the Hebrew spelling of the, the, uh, the name of God. Had stopped being used in common conversation or even common writings. Uh, it was considered to be too sacred to use, too sacred to speak. And so in the Greek... The name of God was translated Lord. The word that translates for us in the English to be Lord. In Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8. God says I am the Lord that is my name. Meaning my name and no one else's. And my glory I will not give unto another neither my praise to graven images. In other words, it says what it's telling us. Here's the first part of the two sides, two characteristics of the name that was given to Jesus. The name that was given to Jesus signifying his conquest, signifying his victory, was that he is Lord of all. Now that has special significance when you know something about the the Roman Empire and how that Caesars began calling themselves Lord and making everybody confess that Caesar is Lord. Everybody understood what the name meant. It meant that Caesar sees himself as God, as a deity. And the name Lord meant that the individual, the holder of that name, was worthy to receive divine blessings, worthy to receive divine input, worthy to receive the divine, the, 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 everything that comes with divinity. And so the church, the Christians, the early church, could not confess that Caesar was Lord no matter what it meant for them. Because they know that the name that was given to Jesus that was above every name is Lord. Can't have but one. Can't have but one name above every name. It's either Caesar or it's Jesus. The second part of it is notice that every knee shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The second part of it is this. God exalted the name of Jesus to be equivalent or equal to the title Lord. Now, there's a lot of Jesuses in his day. There's a lot of people that are named Jesus today. We know in, the, in uh, uh, Spanish, it's Jesus. But it's the same thing. It's the same name. And so, what makes the name of Jesus, our Jesus, different than the name of anybody else on the earth 
or that ever lived before that was named Jesus. Very simply this. When God exalted Jesus and gave him the title Lord, it equated his name Jesus with Lord. So, again, it says, Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Why? Because Jesus now is Lord. Every knee should bow and every uh, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Paul's going to start talking about himself and them. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, and remember, again, the contrast we'll use, maybe the greatest contrast, is the uh, Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was filled with uh, different groups. Some said, well, Paul's my guy. Others said, no, Peter's a better preacher. Some people say, well, I like Apollos better and, and um, uh, so forth. And so Paul had to assert his authority as an apostle. He wound up telling the people, you may have 10,000 instructors, but you've got one spiritual father, and that's me. If I'm an apostle to anybody, it's you. Meaning, you should certainly give heed and credibility to the things that I'm telling you by the Spirit of God. Well, he had to, con- he had to command obedience from the Corinthian church. He didn't have to do that here with the Philippians. He says, I know you've always obeyed. You obeyed when I was there, and you kept obeying when I was gone. But he said, since I'm not always going to be with you, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Working out your own salvation just simply means let the principles and the precepts of Jesus, his characteristics, the characteristics of of, uh, Christianity, the things that the Holy Ghost has changed in you by the new birth and by your growth in the things of God, let those show forth in your your life. the, the, The crux of the verse is with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. We don't understand this much because church is different for us than it was for them. You remember what Paul said that he wanted um, when he wrote to the Corinthians? It's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25. He's talking to them about how the, the, uh, the Spirit of God moves, manifestations of the Spirit, and so forth. Folks, you need to understand something that in Paul's mind, church should be a time, church services and gatherings should be a time where anybody that comes in from the outside would recognize that the presence of God and the power of God is in operation in the presence of them all. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, if an unbeliever comes in or somebody that's unlearned, he said, you should be operating in such a way that they would say, God is in you of a truth. That's what fear and trembling refers to. It refers to the respect and the awe that we should have knowing that when we gather together for the purpose of growing in God and exalting the name of Jesus, the presence of God is here among us to do anything and everything that needs to be done. Now, folks, I would submit to you that if we had fear and trembling about the presence of God in our midst, the church would be a lot more effective in the world. But that's what Paul's talking about. That's what he means. He goes further, for it is God which worketh in you. I won't always be there, but it's God at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, in the Old Testament, obedience brought an understanding of the will of God, but the law couldn't give you the power to fulfill his will. 
Here where he's talking about it's, the, it's God that works in you to, to, to will and to do of his good pleasure, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's talking about God will not only by the Holy Ghost reveal his desires to your heart so that you can have his same desires, but it'll also strengthen you so that you can carry them out. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. He's referring again. We'll contrast the Corinthian church. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to them about how that uh, he warned them about not making the same mistakes that Israel did in the wilderness. How that they murmured against God and, and uh, tempted God 10 times and came under the judgment of God. The Bible tells us and, and Paul reveals himself. There's so much of what Paul says to the church that is uh, based in principles of the Old Testament that he's learned and grew up uh, memorizing and and uh, studying and so forth. And he teaches some of the same things to different churches, but he teaches particularly to the Philippian church in a much gentler way because he's not having to try to fix a problem. But in the Old Testament, the Bible says that the, that the generation that murmured and complained against God was called perverse, crooked, and unfaithful. He says, just very simply, the principle, the principle is the same, even though their obedience is different. He says... Do all things without murmurings and disputings, without complaining and murmuring, that you may be blameless, harmless, the sons of God without, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. The crookedness is outside of you, not within. It's in the nation, the people, the, the, the times and the cities that you're in. A crooked, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nations, among whom you shine as lights in the world. He uses the same word that Jesus did when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. It's the word, it's uh, the Greek word luminary, literally translated luminaries. He's talking about stars in the heaven. Stars don't shine in the heavens for their own benefit. They shine for the benefit of those that look. And that's what he's talking about the church. You should be like stars in the heavens. Lights to light the way for those who don't know Jesus. Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. He's saying your lives should show people the way to God. Then he starts talking about himself again. Verse 17, we can go through this pretty quickly. I think I can get through the chapter. Yea, and if I be offered, literally poured out upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Paul has already indicated in chapter 1 that he thinks that he's going to be set free. He's confident that he's going to be set free and he'll be able to see him again. But he's pointing out that nobody knows for sure. Apparently God hadn't told him specifically because if he had, then he'd be able to tell us for certain. But remember, he said, either way, I've got a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but it's better for you if I stay here and abide in the flesh. I think that it's going to go my way, he tells us in so many words. But he says, if my life is poured out like a sacrifice, let it be on the sacrifice of your service and faith. Here's what that means. And again, he's going back to the Old Testament sacrifices, the principles of the Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, when a burnt, burnt sacrifice or a burnt offering was brought to the Lord, it was very seldom brought by itself. But in most cases, there would be a, a burnt offering and then there would be a meal or a cereal offering where grain would be brought at the same time. And then on top of that would be poured out either wine or olive oil. That was called the drink offering. And it was, the drink offering was never offered by itself. It was always offered as a topper, if you will. And I, that's, I'm sure that's not a Hebrew term. 
but it was something that covered or topped off the other sacrifice that was being made. That's what he's talking about here. He said, if my life is poured out like a drink offering, let it be on the sacrifice of your faith and your service. He said, if that's the case, I'll rejoice. You rejoice with me. For the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. Now he's going to talk about just nuts and bolts stuff. He's saying, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to tempt Timothy shortly unto you, that I may also be of good comfort when I know of your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Christ. But you know the proof of him that as a son with the Father, he has served me with the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently so soon as I see how it shall go with me. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to send Timothy to you pretty soon. When I find out for sure one way or the other what's going to happen, I'm going to send Timothy to you. Now, you know Timothy because you, he was with me the first time, Acts 16, the first time that I came to Ephesus. Or, I mean, uh, where am I? Philippi. First time I came to Philippi, Timothy was with me. You know him. You know he cared for you just like I do. You know that he's like-minded with me you know his purpose is the same as mine he's after what god wants and only what god wants and boy he's a rare breed because most everybody wants to make a place for themselves they're seeking after what they can get from their way of ministry the gospel or or separate from me and go do their own thing so that they can be known as somebody that did the work themselves or whatever the case might be but timothy is like-minded and man it's very rare to find somebody like that folks It's very rare to find somebody that just wants what God wants and doesn't think about themselves first. But apparently that's the kind of person that Timothy was. So he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you as soon as I find out what the the court's verdict is. Then you'll know what's going on with me and I'll be able to hear back from him and be comforted about you. Verse 24. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. I think I'm going to get out and be set free. I think I'm going to be delivered from this, he's saying. Turn loose. Yet, now the rest of the chapter, verse 25 through verse 30, is talking about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was of the city of Philippi. He was a representative of the city that had been sent at least once, maybe on several occasions, to, from Philippi to where Paul was to bring him offerings and to, to help him in any way that he could. While he was on the mission field. Well apparently Epaphroditus. Either on the way to Paul. With the last offering that they sent. And remember Paul is in jail in Rome. So from Philippi to Rome. To minister and help Paul. And remember prisoners. You weren't fed. By the Romans. You had to come up with your own food. If nobody cared enough about you to take care of you. And keep you alive. Then you just starved to death in prison. If the Romans put you in prison they don't figure you're worth trying to keep alive so that's why churches particularly the philippian church would send back and forth to him especially when he was in prison when he was under duress and and great distress like in this case and epaphroditus had done that at least this time maybe once or twice before so on the way from philippi to rome or shortly after he got to rome epaphroditus got sick bible tells us why he got sick we'll talk about that in just a moment But Epaphroditus and Paul both know and have heard that Philippi knows about Epaphroditus being sick. And so they're wondering what happened. We don't know the the details. We don't know if they know the extent of of what happened to him or, or how sick he was. Apparently they don't know that because Paul fills in the blanks on some of the details for them, for their sake. 
And so Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi with this letter. And that's what he's talking about. So he says, yet I suppose it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. And notice what Paul says about him. My brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger. The word messenger is the word apostle. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know if they have given him that title at the church or if Paul is using this title to show honor to Epaphroditus, expecting the people to respect him. There's possibility that all kinds of things are said about that Epaphroditus. Here we trusted him with the offering. He goes and gets sick. Who knows what happened to him, what happened to our money, and what happened to Paul, and all kinds of things would be question marks in the minds of the people. And so the first thing Paul does is build this guy up in their esteem. My brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger or apostle, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that you had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now I'm going to stop right there for just a second and point something out. You know how a lot of people talk about how Paul speaks of... Um, his thorn in the flesh when he's writing to the Corinthian church it was given unto me the messenger of Satan a thorn in the flesh and so many times people talk about that being sickness I want you to consider something folks here's a guy that got sick and Paul doesn't mix any words about the fact that he got sick why then would Paul in writing to a church that he's the Corinthian church I'm talking about writing to a church that he's having to establish his own apostolic authority, why would he not identify the situation since he knew they knew? If Paul's thorn in the flesh was sickness, why didn't he call it sickness? He sure did here. What benefit would there be in any way whatsoever? He's not keeping anybody in the dark. They know what his situation is. He tells them his situation. He talks in just a few well, one chapter before, he's talked to him about these false prophets and false apostles. He said, are they ministers of Christ? I'm more. In labors more abundant, in prisons more often, in distress, in perils among the brethren, in perils among the cities, in perils of wilderness, in famines, in shipwreck three times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Three times I was uh, uh, given 40 stripes, save one, 39 stripes. Over and over again, he talks about the things that he's endured because of his willingness to preach the gospel. If he was sick, why didn't he say he was sick? He sure said it about Epaphroditus. I've even had some people even say, well, Paul didn't want anybody to know he was sick. Then what's he writing the letter for? If that's what it means. And if he didn't want anybody to know that, that people or anyone associated with him could get sick, why in the world did he tell us Epaphroditus was sick? Doesn't make sense, folks. No, Paul's thorn in, the, thorn in the flesh was exactly what he said it was, and it was persecution. It was the source of all those things that had happened to him. Sickness is about the only thing that Paul doesn't mention on the list. But Epaphroditus got sick, verse 27 again, for indeed he was sick nigh unto death. He almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have had sorrow upon sorrow. That literally means I'm not sure I could have handled it if he had died. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, 
and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. In other words, honor him. Now verse 30 tells why he got sick. Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. That last, ver- that last phrase in the verse is a little tough. It makes it sound like the, the Epaphroditus did what they wouldn't do. But it just simply means he worked himself almost to death. The word that he uses for uh, uh, this translated not regarding his life. It's the only time in the New Testament this word is used and it means he gambled his life. Another translation says having recklessly exposed his life to supply your lack of service toward me. In other words, to do for me the things that you weren't in a position to do because you're not here. In other words, Epaphroditus worked himself almost to death. Now, it's interesting, and we'll close with this. It's interesting to me, preaching on healing and, and, and focusing on healing the way that we do. It's interesting to me that Paul didn't talk about Epaphroditus' faith. He talks about God's mercy. Why would that be? When we know that faith so often depends on, I'm sorry, that healing so often depends on the faith of the individual. Why does he not magnify Epaphroditus' faith? You would think that somebody that's familiar enough and loves Paul's ministry enough would be familiar with the principles of faith. Paul taught these things everywhere he went. We know the first time he was in Galatia in the cities of Lystra and Derby, and this was part of what got Timothy on board in Acts chapter 14. There they preached the gospel. There sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, crippled, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked, the same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now let me ask you a question. How did the guy get faith to be healed? All he's heard Paul preach is the gospel. Well, since faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, if he had faith to be healed, then that means Paul's gospel, what Paul refers to and Luke refers to as Paul preaching the gospel, had to contain healing. Paul had to be preaching that Jesus died for your sins and your sicknesses or else he couldn't have had faith to be healed. If Paul had been preaching on water baptism, then this guy and others would have had faith to be baptized. If Paul had been preaching the forgiveness of sins, he'd had faith to to be saved, to give his heart to Jesus. But the fact that he has faith to be healed necessitates that what the Holy Ghost calls Paul preaching the gospel includes healing. Had a guy tell me one time, Well, we don't focus on healing. We just preach the gospel. I said, oh, you mean Acts 14 gospel? He said, what's that? So I had to tell him. So why didn't it tell us anything about Epaphroditus' faith? Because, folks, the Bible says if your heart condemns you not, then you have confidence toward God. If you're recklessly exposing your life, in other words, going further than you knew you should have gone, pushing your body further than you knew you should have gone, it'd be tough to have faith in that condition. But thank God for his mercy. But God had mercy on him. Paul says, and upon me also. Because I would have had sorrow upon sorrow if he had died. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death. You'd think that God would give you a pass from overworking when you're doing good things like working for Jesus. But your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost. No matter what you're doing, you're responsible for taking care of it appropriately. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, almost died, not regarding his life, 
as I said in other translations, is having recklessly exposed his life to supply your lack of service toward me, to provide for me the things that you were in a position to do because you're not here. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to know you through your word, to fellowship with you through the unchanging, eternal, never-failing word of God. Thank you, Father, that we can have the same mind of Christ, the same attitude that Jesus had, and submit ourselves to things that are not pleasant, to submit ourselves to people that take advantage of us, to walk in humility just like Jesus did when we understand his sacrifice. What a privilege it is to do the work of God and show others the character and the nature of God through the way we live our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.